In this week's episode, we talk a lot about living a miserable life. Now, it should be noted that the article we're reading this week is kind of satire, and we don't actually suggest... Maybe. maybe. We're not sure. We don't actually suggest that you live a miserable life um, at all. Uh, we want you to be happy, and we want ourselves to be happy, too. So with that in mind, let's start the episode. Welcome to episode two of Every Day is a Day. I am Luke. I'm Cassidy. And have you felt a little miserable lately? Maybe a bit. Can you elaborate on that? <laughs> no, I'm actually feeling pretty good, but everyone feels miserable from time to time, don't they? Uh, yeah. Um, I've been feeling a little bit miserable lately, but misery implies like an extensive amount of suffering, I think, which I'm not having. Oh, Okay. Well, um, today's episode is called sort of the opposite of the last one. This one will be called... How to use modern psychology to live a miserable life. That's the WikiHow article. We're going to just take out the modern psychology part for the episode title, though. Well, um, how have you been feeling lately? Like, how was your week? How, how are you since last time we recorded? Really good. I've been really busy. Really, really busy. Leaving on holiday tomorrow. Where are you going? Not specifically, but where? (laughs) California. California. The great golden state of California. Yes, thank you. I've never been there. Oh, I've been to LA before, but I'm not going to LA this time. That's good. I've only ever been... The furthest west I was was like Jasper in BC. I've never been to the coast of, of the west coast. Oh, really? No. Mm-hmm. I, I, I feel like I might want to go to California sometime, but the, my view of L.A. has like totally dissuaded me from going there, even though it's a very big place with lots of things and different things. Yeah, and there's lots of California that isn't L.A. Also, yeah. L.A. Yeah. is a very unique city. Yeah. And I'm not going to be anywhere near there. That's good. Or maybe <laughs> it's not. I don't know. I like L.A. Okay. Um, what have I been doing this week? Uh, I have a week off school. Well, we both have a week off school next week. Um, so time to not work hard enough and not catch up. Uh, that sounds like a good way to live a miserable life. Yeah, it does. It does sound like a good way to live a miserable life. Another good way to live a miserable life would be to stay confined in your house. Um, not getting into contact with friends and family and sort of suffering and sitting still and doing nothing. Which is not in my plans, but it may end up happening. Is that something you're worried about? Yes, because when I have no structure, I have a no bones day, as they say on the TikToks. <laughs> been, been really up at, with the, my students have been saying no bones day. No bones day. Yeah. yeah, and I was like, no, it's called Wednesday. Today's Wednesday. <laughs> let's let's dive into the article. So this article claims to tell us how to use modern psychology to live a miserable life. Fair warning, this is kind of a joke episode. We don't actually, we're not actually suggesting you be miserable. Uh, what's the rating of this look like? Uh, 73%. It's kind of funny that they have percentages for star ratings, but anyway, 73%, mm-hmm. 15 votes. That's not, last one was like thousands and thousands of votes, if I can remember. <laughs> um... What are you looking at the author? Yeah, I don't even think it has author. Okay, so the last one was written by a specific person. This one is a 
some sort of amalgamation. Or the person staying anonymous, which I would understand if I wrote this article. Yeah. (laughs) Why don't you read that intro quote? (laughs) When I was happier, it was because I knew I was on my way back to misery. I've never been convinced that happiness is the object of the game. I'm wary of happiness. And you know, that's by Hugh Laurie. And actually, I'm thinking of him reading that in his house accent where he's like, when I was happier, I was an idiot. It's because I knew I was on my way back to misery, you know? <laughs> Not very Hugh Laurie, but very housey of a quote. Do you ever do, do you ever like the idea of being miserable or like is it ever like a comforting thing? Yeah, definitely. Um I wish I didn't say that or I didn't think that. Because it's obviously not good to be miserable, um, but sometimes when you go an extended period of time where you're having a hard time or you're depressed, it can feel like the only thing that you know. And so it is comforting Mm. in kind of a weird, strange way, and positive emotions feel threatening. Yeah, I definitely have had um, some points in my life where things have just been kind of down, and I've been like, maybe I was like out of a relationship or like... I haven't been doing well in school or my job sucks, whatever. And I'm just like content in my loneliness or my quote unquote misery. If you want to feel miserable sometimes, then 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 maybe that's a good thing. I don't know. Well, I think if you are in acceptance of being miserable when things are going wrong in your life, that's a good thing. I don't think anybody really wants Anybody healthy really wants to be miserable, Um, but it is... I think it's sort of like a romanticized feeling a little bit. Yeah, I honestly can't imagine why, but... But you you know, I think... Do you know what I mean, though? Yeah, I mean... I hope this comes across when people are listening. In the next paragraph in the intro, it says, Without misery, we would have no Alexander, no Mozart, no Tolstoy, and no Van Gogh, which (laughs) is... It's kind of funny because that, especially some mental illnesses like depression and bipolar are very romanticized in that many artists, the greatest artists of our our time, um, oh, yeah. do suffer from those diseases. And I've heard a lot of people make the argument that like to create good art, you need to come from a source of extreme pain or like like art has to come from pain. Mm-hmm. Which I don't think I agree with. No, I don't. I, I mean, I definitely don't agree with any of this. I don't agree that that's where art has to come from. But there is well-documented um, evidence that certain mental health problems and creativity and artistic talent are correlated. Why um, is that? Why? I don't know. I, I couldn't tell you. I think it's probably a pretty complex set of things. But at the end of the day... Um, we're not entitled to anybody's artistic or creative output. And I think most people who are suffering would prefer to not be talented and also not be suffering yeah. than be talented and suffer. I also have a feeling that like people who are suffering might just be still talented when they're not. I don't know. Like any time I've ever been really down, it's never been a creative or productive time of my life. Um, I, would, I would say the same, but perhaps when you get a bit of a break from the suffering then you then you might be more creative because you have a, a burst of um like a pause a non-chemical from... imbalance yeah. burst, of, burst of standard chemistry and brain yes exactly 
Part one, accept that you might be one of the people built to be miserable. Oh, I'm just built different. <laughs> I really am built different. That's, that's, that's your perception. I don't know if that's true. Yes, you do. No, no. <laughs> no. Yes, you do. But it's okay. Blame the cortical lottery. About half of all humans are born in the negative half of the affective, affective style spectrum. In a nutshell, some people are just born pessimists. Just notice there's no citation there whatsoever. And there's quotation marks with no citation. So it's really great. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe that, that's a citation. Oh, there is one happened. earlier. Yeah. Yeah improperly cited but maybe still cited wiki how but cited you know yeah um there it is a a personality trait that can be quote-unquote measured neuroticism and the higher you are in neuroticism the more pessimistic and depressed and down you are okay um and how do you measure that asking for a friend (laughs) there are some um like self-reported measures that you can take and psychologists can also interview you there's a few different ways that it can be measured obviously it's not an exact science but yeah lots of people who are not struggling with you know a mental health condition do score highly on neuroticism it can just be who are not struggling oh okay it can literally just be a personality trait interesting Mm-hmm. In the first, the first point there talks about how your genes predispose you to focus on threats, lack of confidence to deal with them, uh, coping styles that rely on avoidance and, and other self-defense mechanisms. It sounds like things that I have done before. I don't know. Um, predisposed to focus on threats. Mm-hmm. What are threats in your life that you focus on? Relationship problems. Right. Definitely the biggest one that I struggle with. Um yeah, I, I would say that's that's definitely the worst. My brain definitely perceives that as a big threat, and I can get pretty, pretty um, unhappy if stuff goes wrong in my relationships. And, okay. Yeah. Last episode, you said relationships are one of the three most important things to you in your life. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that's sort of connected. I think one of the threats in my life is is human connection or like really opening yourself up to human connection whether it be physical or like mental stimuli. Um, I don't know. That's, that's like scary to me in a way. Um, do you, it says here, you tend to think the world is unjust and uncontrollable. I don't know if I believe that, but I think the longer that somebody is in a hole, mm-hmm. the more they believe that. Like I have some friends who really do believe that. Yeah. And it's hard because even at my worst, I don't believe that. Mm-hmm. I've definitely believed that before, but um, I think I'm, <laughs> I've gotten over that for sure. That's good. Okay. What's, you want to scroll down a bit? You're in control of this. Knowing this can help you stop trying to fit a square peg in a round hole, so to speak. With all the emphasis on happiness, your life might be more functional knowing you're miserable by default. Okay. So this is where the article sort of branches into the more surreal, um, <laughs> tells us to be depressed. I agree with it, though. Um, There isn't anything unusual or dysfunctional about having a more negative affect. Now, when it goes into, you know, pathological levels, then you should address that. But some people just are natural um, pessimists and critical thinkers. And that's not necessarily a problem, even though we can, there's sometimes pressure on us to be happy and positive all the time. But... 
I think when you can accept the way that you are instead of the way that you want to be, it's better. I agree. But I also think that um, as somebody who is a former uh, very critical and negative and pessimistic person, I've really tried in the last few years to break out of that. And I think I've succeeded mostly. Um, I'm a lot more positive than I was. I think that sitting in the dysfunction and thinking it's normal is also not good. Uh, I would say sitting in it is not good, but thinking it's normal is good. For all, only is. for a certain amount of time. Yeah, yes. I mean, it depends on what the the amplitude of it is, the intensity yeah. and the length of time, of yeah. course. But if it's not seriously interfering <clears throat> with your life um, and it's just, you know, your personality and it's not causing you tons of pain or problems mm-hmm. in your life, then it's okay to accept that you might not just be like a cheery, full of sunshine individual by nature. And that's not a problem. Fair enough. Sometimes I feel like externally my... my uh emotions and like my speech is pretty level and muted like especially in public or in groups or whatever and when I'm teaching to teach with students a lot of teachers and, and my colleagues are like very expressive and bubbly and I'm like that is so not me like I don't feel like I could be taken seriously or even like given the time of day by the students if I were like that because I wouldn't it would be like acting like bad acting <laughs> I don't know I've talked to a few people about that but yeah, I think it's all about just figuring out what, what works for you and what comes naturally to you. And it's different for everybody. Some people are just like that. And it's not acting for them because that's just how they are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Part two, know how to move the needle. In order to be functional, it's good to become familiar with ways to move around on the spectrum of misery and happiness. Hey, okay, this is good. There's more of a balance focus here. What do you think? I see three points. Meditation, cognitive behavioral therapy. Uh, Mm -hmm. somebody asked me if we were going to be talking about this on the show and I was like, yes, we are. Which part? Cognitive behavioral therapy. Oh, let's talk about it. Let's do it. Let's talk about it. Yeah. It says uh, meditation, CBT and Meditation. medication. So, well, have you done any of those before? Um, meditation? Yes. In different ways, not consistently. Um, no medication before. Um, cognitive behavioral therapy, I might need a little refresher on, on like the specifics of what that is. Mm-hmm. Is it that just like a noticing problems when they're happening kind of thing? No, that's more mindfulness. Um, CBT is a type of therapy where... It's self-therapy, isn't it? No, oh. it's, it's pretty straightforward. So people do teach it to themselves, but um, no, you usually do it with a therapist. Hmm. But it's about taking thoughts or, yeah, thoughts, statements, feelings, and evaluating them and changing them into more productive um, and reasonable thoughts. Okay, so it's like diverting your energy and diverting your focus. Not your, it's it's actually very, in, very, very direct. It's like, oh. if I were to think... Like if I did badly on a on an exam or a test or something, I've done and that a lot. I, <laughs> and I said, like mentally in my own head, I said, um, like I'm so stupid, mm-hmm. I'm a failure, I should have done better. That's not a very productive thought, and 
CBT teaches you to identify what's called cognitive distortions. Mm -hmm. So things kind of wrong, quote unquote, with the thought. So saying that you're stupid and you're a failure, that would be called global labeling. So using a label um, for yourself. And then I should have done better. That's a should, um, which is also a distortion. So then what you would do... Should it be could? Sorry, keep going. um, No, not could. But... For each type of distortion, there's a healthier way to change Mm. it. Mm -hmm. And the more you practice it, the more um, innate it becomes. So for global labels, um, you can either just get rid of them or you can say, I'm feeling like a failure, Mm. which takes it away. It's it's better to focus on the feelings because that's like something you can't like deny in that moment where Mm -hmm. where the feeling is sort of fueling the global label in in that way. Yeah. Okay. But it's good to be, because um, the feeling is there, and it's good to acknowledge it and accept it. Right. But that doesn't mean you are a failure. No. And for should statements, um, a lot of the time it's good to change it to I wish. Mm. Um, like, I wish that I had done better. I wish I had um, gotten a better grade. You know what? There's To loop this into my life a little bit so I can relate to it, with teaching... One of the practices of teaching is obviously self-reflection and reflection on what you did. So the standard procedure is like what went well and it would have been even better if blank. Mm -hmm. So similar idea is what I'm hearing here. Yeah, for sure. Uh, The language that we use to describe things and especially the language we use in our own heads actually does have a profound impact on our mental well-being. Mm -hmm. Um, and so CBT can be really effective for a whole host of different mental health challenges and not even, again, to necessarily you have to have a mental illness for it to be useful. It's, it's useful for everyone to mm-hmm. um, have a bit of a more balanced and um, kind outlook on life. Yeah, I think the key of, of a lot of people's misery is not being kind to themselves. It's when I've been most upset, it's when I'm not being kind to myself. Mm-hmm. I know you're the same. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So CBT is a good way to move the needle. I think I think it's nice to have it defined like that. Um, meditation. Mm-hmm. You do meditation sometimes. Lots. Lots? Yeah. I've done it in a few different ways, but I've never been too consistent with it. But um, as for medication, I've never been medicated for my emotions, really. I or my have. Or my moods. I am. You are. Okay, well, there you go. Yeah. Well, Does vitamin C twice count? Or... <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I don't think so. Okay. Um, what about um, Gaviscon? What's Gaviscon? It's for heartburn. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. Maybe that counts. Okay. Um, yeah, it's for some people, they need medication. I really do. Um, I take two different medications for that. And I've tried plenty of others. Um yeah, there's nothing wrong with taking medication if it's something that you need. Mm-hmm. And some of us need it. Yeah. Some of us don't know they need it, too. <laughs> the only way to find out is to ask a professional. That's true. That's true. So if you're thinking about it, maybe you should ask somebody. Yeah, you don't even have to ask about medication. If you're having struggles in your life that are interfering with your you know, everyday life, then going to talk to someone like a family doctor... Um, or a counselor at mm-hmm. school, it's a really good place to start. And you don't have to have whether or not you want to be on medication sorted out. That's something that comes down the exactly. line. You have to find a way to move that needle if it isn't moving normally. 
Part three, get on the hedonic treadmill. Nice. Work as hard as you want, accumulate all the stuff you want, and get fabulously famous. This will raise your expectations. You will keep wanting more and be no better off than you were before. <laughs> it's perfect. <There's, laughs> that's the best part about point three is there's actually nothing more said there. That's all that's <laughs> there. So it's just basically a recipe for self-destruction of your life. Mm-hmm. Is that yeah. all we can talk about with that? I think so. Yeah. Um, I find it funny that it says accumulate all the stuff that you want because... Stuff think- that you want. Yeah. Not that you need. Yeah, uh, people have a really bad habit a lot of the time. And if you're lucky enough to have disposable income um, of kind of self-medicating with buying stuff Mm -hmm. and it doesn't work and it clutters our lives and it can actually make us far more stressed out Mm -hmm. and not to mention financially unstable. Yeah. The nice thing about um, being in fear of your finances all the time is that you don't do that. In my case, I, I... withhold spending to the point where it's unhealthy the other way mm-hmm. i used um, to be like that too okay there you go the thing about raising expectations is a good point it really uh, it ties into teaching in a way where uh you keep raising your expectations for your students it will allow them to reach more levels of achievement but if you're constantly raising your expectations for yourself and you're raising them too high or you're not able to fulfill them that can be pretty scary mm-hmm. learning to be satisfied sometimes with uh, your work or yourself is really important you can't always be chasing more like you know how yeah yeah true you know how like when you self-reflect and you realize like oh five years ago i wanted these things and now i have them last week you said i i achieved a lot of the things i set out to achieve Mm -hmm. and then like when you're in that moment sometimes you realize that's like oh but now i have all these other things that are going on and i don't feel like powerful or proud about that stuff that I really desperately wanted like two Mm -hmm. years ago I was like I need to get in teachers called so bad I need to do something and now I'm here and I'm just like oh my god what do I do when I get hired and I don't know what to do (laughs) it's it's like a constant life process Mm -hmm. yeah learning how to be happy and proud of yourself is important it's not something that I've necessarily learned how to do but nice one day one day for both of us I think Fingers crossed. Oh no. Part four is buy happiness. Those who think that money can't buy happiness just don't know where to shop. If you're homeless, just buy a house is basically <laughs> what I'm getting from this. Buy things that make you happy. I, I think I agree with that at a base level. Buy things that make you happy. Um, Gucci soft steer. I don't understand any of that. It's just talking about designer, yeah, designer clothes and bags and stuff. Um, It does say, oh, it says, unlike spending on unforgettable experiences with family and friends, spending on stuff won't keep you happy for too long. This is the adaptation principle at work. Okay, that's my favorite part about this point is that last line, actually. That's really good because an article that acknowledges that it's about being miserable but keeping the needle moving back and forth needs to talk about like how material possessions do not make you happy and cannot make you happy forever Mm -hmm. yeah i agree with it and i think uh yeah spending money on experiences with people you care about is a good way to be happy it's Mm -hmm. a good way to spend your money if you have it yeah that's why i didn't I always have horrible anxiety when spending money on things that I feel like I don't need to buy. 
Um, but when we went on the trip to the East Coast in August, I didn't really have that anxiety. And mm-hmm. even though the gas bill was like one thousand dollars, I didn't. I still don't feel any fear or shame about that because I was like, okay, I just I went on a trip that not many people have been on, mm-hmm. and it feels good. Number five, immerse yourself in noise. Humans never fully adapt to noise. What? Especially if it is variable or intermittent. It is guaranteed to increase your stress. <laughs> Move to a busy intersection if you can. <laughs> this is a... Okay. I feel like this guy was feeling a word quota here. I like this one, though. No, yeah, I like it, too. Basically, turn every fan on in the house. Music. Podcast. Um, make sure your phone is going off constantly. Make sure your phone's going off constantly. Um, never allow yourself to be alone. Constantly throw yourself into groups of people. Never let your brain quiet down. It's great. It's good. Live in the middle of the city where there are sirens all the time. Yeah, people get murdered on your lawn in July. Don't worry <laughs> about it. What didn't happen to me? Um, maybe I'm going to cut that out. Uh, <laughs> I, I like the idea of if you want to be miserable, just tank yourself with over, like overstimuli of interaction. Mm-hmm. I don't like it. I like it as a point in this satirical article. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely agree with it. I don't have anything else to say about that, really. Part six, commute long distances. Oh, so wonderful. My sister just got a job. Uh, in Toronto, which is about two and a half out. Well, on a bad day, it's probably two and a half hour commute for her. I think she's moving, but whenever I think about commuting, I always think about my parents right before I was born. Um, and my dad commuted 45 minutes every day to his job, but he used to commute to Toronto there and back every day. And that was like two hours, I think. Mm-hmm. And I don't even understand, like, I cannot believe people do that. Like, I know mo- a lot of people do that, mm-hmm. but I just... Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> a lot of people don't have a choice, I know that's the thing. Like, obviously, yes. I commute 35 to 40 minutes, which is, like... but It's pretty long, but it's not that long, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's not every day, either. No, it's three out of five days, which is, which is good. If it was five days, I think I would feel a lot differently. Mm-hmm. And they're not back-to-back, too. I think the longest commute that I've had was like 45, 50 minutes, but that was on the bus. It was like a 10 minute drive. I feel like the, so. <laughs> but that commute sounds worse. Uh, it's all right. I mean, I like the nice thing. You can about, be on your phone on the bus. So. Yeah. But the nice thing about my commutes is that I can be alone in my car with music on the bus. You're surrounded by people. Yeah. Pre COVID. It really wasn't a problem. What do you mean? Pre COVID. Well, I mean, you didn't have no, to worry that someone was going to breathe on you. Yeah, but then there's more people. Yeah. But... That's a problem for me. Oh, okay. Yeah. I want there to be less. <laughs> yeah, nobody likes busy public transit, but... No, je- busy anything. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. What else does this point say? Bonus points if you have long traffic-ridden commutes because you bought a big house in an expensive neighborhood away from work. Sorry, can't relate, middle-class article. Can you... <laughs> No, no, I can't. But a lot of people can. A lot of people prioritize space in their house over location. Mm -hmm. And uh, you definitely need a a balance. You need enough space in your living situation. But a lot of people buy these really large houses and have so much wasted space. Or their house is just used as a storage unit. 
basically. And it's just, it's such a waste of space and money. Mm. Yeah. I, my views on housing and buying houses um, and the housing market are a bit weird. My parents have lived in the same house since I, the year before I was born. Um, and I've only moved, I've only lived in two different places other than that, like as an independent person, which I didn't own, obviously. Um, so like, yeah, my parents' house is pretty small. Um, it's when my sister and I and my parents and the dog were all there, like it was barely big enough. Mm -hmm. And when our grandparents died, there was no space anywhere. So... I like obviously people do buy big houses in expensive neighborhoods, but I don't understand that. So, yeah, I don't know. Well, with luck, I'll never be able to afford it anyway. Next point. <laughs> okay. Number seven, have no control. <laughs> <laughs> Would you like to elaborate on this? A sense of control is one of the most effective ways to increase your sense of engagement, energy, and happiness. But we don't want to do that. <laughs> Yes, uh, having control. I mean, you don't want to be too controlling and not flexible enough, mm -hmm. but having control of your emotions and your behavior mm -hmm. and um, your life's path in general is very empowering when you don't feel you're at the whims of external forces. Yeah. I like the, the, the little note here because the article acknowledged that creatives are, are miserable. It said, you may need to assert some control to produce your painting, novel, <laughs> music, or your revolution, but try not to assert more control than is absolutely necessary. So yeah. essentially, go on benders every weekend? Yeah, pretty okay. much. Okay. Uh, the less accountable you are to others and yourself, the more miserable you will be. Okay. Um, I guess that's good advice if that's my goal, but... Which it is, because the article we're reading is called How to Use Modern Psychology to Live a Miserable Life. Thank you so much. Number eight, shun the self-esteem hawkers. Misguided attempts by schools, self-help gurus, and the popular press to raise self-esteem in children have fostered narcissism and other dark sides of self-esteem. Um, what do you think the author of our first podcast's article would say about this? He was a self-help guru. Narcissism is not caused by high self-esteem. Yeah, I feel like that's... I don't know like if they wrote this as a joke or not, but I feel like that's kind of a dangerous thing to, to start believing in. Yeah, and... Yeah, narcissism comes from a place of low self-esteem at, at its core. There's nothing wrong with having high self-esteem. That doesn't mean being cocky or being full of yourself. Mm. That's not what self-esteem no, is. No, no. I think self, high self-esteem and being cocky are actually kind of opposites. Yeah. Not always, but I think they're not the same thing. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a line here that says, um, improvements to a person's appearance do lead to lasting increases in happiness. So don't think too highly of yourself or how you look. You're exactly where you need to be. So I guess don't make any positive change if you want to be miserable is the idea there. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's interesting that it talks about um, the popular obsession with beauty and how mm. how problematic that is, which it is. But I don't understand how that's related to self esteem. Being told that you're not attractive enough or beautiful enough is sounds like like kind of the opposite of high self esteem. Yeah, I've t I've 
now I'm 27 now, and as I've been getting older and talking to people, friends, colleagues, people I've dated, whatever, um, a lot of people have said like, you know, I've been sort of feeling like I don't need to work as hard for like standards of beauty or putting extreme amounts of work into how my appearance and stuff. And it's been like people talking about scaling back the makeup that they use or, you know, as your job becomes more complex and your life is busier, it's like scaling back from those things is fine. And like realizing that those standards were put on you, they're not a part of you. Mm -hmm. I think it definitely comes somewhat with maturity. Mm -hmm. Um, But also, yeah, if you are a person that has lots of hobbies and you feel comfortable with where you're at professionally and personally and with your relationships, then yeah, you're going to feel less like you have to make up for it or compensate for it in Mm -hmm. terms of your physical appearance. But yeah, Mm -hmm. it's, it's interesting because it says, although attractive people are not generally happier than unattractive ones, some improvements in a person's appearance do lead to a lasting increase in happiness. And which is the positive note there. mm, There is it. Yeah, but I mean, also, it depends on what you mean by, like, improvements in a person's appearance. Oh, improvements and, in a... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because there are ways that, you know, a lot of us can reasonably uh, improve our appearance a little bit. But at the end of the day, um, it's a societal problem. People treat mm-hmm. people who are attractive better. Um, yeah, that is... That's, like, a real thing. That's, like a fact that can be analyzed and picked apart. Mm -hmm. So something to note in this article full of jokes and not facts. Part nine, choose your friends wisely. This is the big one. That's a line in the article, but I was also going to say that. This is the big one. The strength and number of your relationships trump all other factors in your pursuit of misery. Um, Yeah, definitely. And if I'm thinking the opposite, that your pursuit of happiness, that's true too. Bad relationships make people miserable. Miserable people are attracted to bad... or Sorry. Miserable people attract bad relationships. Hmm. I mean, yeah, I guess, technically. Mm-hmm. Misery does, in fact, love company. Perfect. People never adapt to personal conflict. Is that so? You can count on that bullying patron, editor, lead vocalist, grim and determined comrade, if that's the revolution that you're pursuing or spouse to constantly add to your misery even when they're not physically present just ruminate on the conflict okay okay ruminate have you how often do you ruminate on conflict constantly like literally constantly if i'm not actually um engaged with something else and distracted it's a huge problem conflict in a general sense or conflict specifically certain conflict um in a general sense, because it doesn't have to be necessarily like an argument or a fight or anything, but things that I feel bad about. Okay. Sometimes the conflict is me versus myself. Um, yeah. Oh, but... it's always that for me. <laughs> I've tried to scale. I don't get angry at people, really. I get I get angry at myself, you know? I don't, I'm not the kind of person that looks back on something that happened five years ago and is super embarrassed about it, but like I'm definitely looking back on situations and being angry at ways that I handled it or angry at things that I'm not doing or things that I am doing in the moment. Maybe those things are making me more miserable. Who knows? Do you find you're really critical of yourself? Yeah, I, some, in some ways, but then in other ways where I 
where I should be maybe and that I'm not. Like what? Like I'll be overly critical about like habits or deadlines um, maybe as an example, but then like, like, like habits of mind, like being on time or something like that, then I won't be as critical on myself. Like I, I do catch myself blaming external factors, which is like a problem in that way. Blaming external factors for your problems. Actually, that's the first part of the article said, Mm -hmm. blaming the world. (laughs) I do do that sometimes. I think everybody does, but I think it's important to move away from that. If your goal is being happy, which it's not, it should be being miserable this week. Just kidding. Yeah. And use modern psychology to do it. Right. Thanks for the update. (laughs) No problem. Well, that was point nine. Um, wow, the article's just over. So there's two warnings at the end of this article. What are they? Never try to be miserable if you're undergoing depression or are under a lot of stress. And what's the second one? While misery and moderation can help you, don't be miserable for too long. So I think those are really good uh, warnings to put at the start of the article, maybe. <laughs> Not at the end. Um, but those are those illustrate good points. It's talking about moving that needle again, like... The needle can't be staying in the misery. It has to be going around to the happiness as well. Um, all right. How do you feel about this article? As a joke, but also as a real article, kind of. <laughs> I don't understand if the article is a joke or if it actually is advice. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't think I struggle with needing to learn how to be miserable. No, neither do I. So uh, <laughs> I wouldn't say that I found it particularly useful. No, but... neither did I. So if you're really sick of being happy all the time, this article is for you. Mm-hmm. But who's who's going to be sick of being happy all the time? Wish, <laughs> wish that was me. Yeah. Okay. We have one more segment today. This is our viewer voicemail segment. Um, this is the part of the show where our viewers, be they friends, family, or other, can submit uh, a problem that they have for us to talk about. Uh, today's problem is kind of related to misery, but it's more than that, and I'll play it now. Hey, uh, my name is Nicole, and this is the problem I've been having for the last year or so, and it's that I'm very confused at being successful. Uh, to give context, I've been an art person my whole life. I went to art school. I've never really felt good anything except for maybe art. And then even after doing art school, I just worked at McDonald's. So classic, you know, oh, great, you went to art school. You're not going to do anything. Um, but the last year I graduated from college doing another diploma and I had like 90s average and got an award and, uh, people want me to work for them. And I'm not trying to brag, I'm just confused. I I don't know who these people think I am, but I feel like I have tricked everyone into thinking that I'm good at stuff, and I don't believe that I'm actually good at these things. Well, uh, Nicole, thank you very much. Nicole and I have been friends for seven or eight years now. We used to work together at McDonald's when we were both younger. Um, And now our career paths have sort of crossed again. 
she is a activity coordinator slash outdoor educator and I am in teacher education. So we have similar jobs or future jobs. Mm-hmm. Her point is something that I can relate to heavily. <laughs> How about you? Uh, I wouldn't say that I relate to it, but I can empathize. Yeah. So Nicole, the word that you're, the, the phrase, the label you're looking for here is imposter syndrome, which <laughs> uh, the imposter syndrome and I have been uh, getting along swimmingly for many years. Um, but I also feel like you do. I feel like I tricked people into believing that I can do these things or that I'm relatively successful or I can have a career related to education or whatever it is you know Mm -hmm. what do you think that stems from insecurity um when we have experiences when we're young those really shape how we how we see ourselves in the future and if you had experiences when you were younger where you didn't feel you were good at something then that carries through into adulthood even if you become good at that thing you still kind of feel like that little kid or the young adult. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I actually, I can um, understand the feeling, but just maybe not in that arena. I didn't really have too many problems with like work or school ever, Good. Good. but I've had serious problems in other areas of my life. Mm-hmm. And as an adult, they're not really relevant anymore, but I still feel the same way I did when I was younger. I still have those same insecurities. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like that's a lot of what imposter syndrome is i know i have a strong hunch of what my imposter syndrome is tied to and it's tied to feeling being sorry it's tied to feeling like or actually being a bad student um in grade 11 i got a 51 in advanced functions thank you sam by the way for helping me study for that final for that (laughs) pity 51 we got through but my um teacher like didn't say anything about not moving on to the next level and I was doing academic courses or whatever so I just just took the next advanced functions in grade 12 and spoiler alert I didn't pass um, and it and I tried I actually did try hard to pass I were I worked extra time I, I went to the second class of it so I'd attend attended twice the amount of classes for that subject didn't pass got a 48 um, this is sort of for context, this was over 10 years ago. Um, so the education system is not the same anymore. But um, that felt really bad. And I still remember that feeling because it stuck with me. And into university, I was still a bad student in university. And my attendance was bad. And I didn't hand in assignments on time because the late penalties were not that bad. Blah, 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 blah. Failed some stuff in university. A lot of people do that. But it was like habitual for me. And it got to the point where I graduated finally and I was like, I don't want to do school ever again. But then I was like, I need to do something. As I talked about last time we recorded, somebody in my life said, you can't just work at X job for the rest of your life. Like, that's just not a good look. That's not good. Um, And I was like, yeah, that's kind of right. Uh, But maybe I wouldn't have said it that way. (laughs) It's, It's how I felt inside. That was the important part. Yeah. So I applied to teacher's college, didn't get in, applied again, got in. And it was only because I had proved that I had experience, but also that I improved my attitudes towards schooling. Mm -hmm. Um, All this to say, my imposter syndrome with 
you know, semi-professional jobs that I have now comes from being a bad student Mm -hmm. and like letting myself down and also like letting others down in the process. Yeah. Um, it really does stay with you, um, those experiences. But I mean, like right now, that's not the way that you are. I mean, you, you're taking classes, you go to them, you do your assignments, you do well in them, you're, you do yeah. well in your practicum. So like all the, um, the evidence is there that you're doing a good job right now and that's who you are today. Yeah. But you don't feel that way because in those formative years, that's not what you learned. Yeah, exactly. And I do catch myself slipping into certain behaviors, but like when you catch yourself, that's a good that you are aware of when that stuff's happening. Mm-hmm. If I were to respond to Nicole specifically, I, I don't know what's giving her those feelings. It's it's possibly none of the things I just talked about because we're each different people. Um, but something I try to focus on, Nicole, and anybody else, is like, what are the facts? You said kind of, you alluded to that already. What do you actually know? What's measurable in, in your success that is really happening in front of you and not in your own head? Mm-hmm. What, what do people say about you? What what can you see written about you? Stick to the facts. If you have to verbalize it out loud, then maybe that's a good step to take. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Yeah, for sure. That's a, It's funny that you said it like that because that is a therapeutic skill called check the facts. Mm-hmm. And it's, it is not CBT, but it's derived from CBT. Cognitive behavioral therapy. Yes. Yeah. Um, and yeah, a lot of the time it is good to just observe it from like a curiosity standpoint. Mm-hmm. Like what is your life actually like? What are you actually like? What would someone else think? Um, and not getting too invested in our own perceptions of who we are on the inside because usually those are pretty distorted for most people. I, w- I would think so. Yeah. So Nicole, um, just know that you are successful. You're doing great work, and if you, I think if you look at the facts, you will you will see that too. Mm-hmm. And if you can figure out a way to um, forgive yourself or be compassionate or whatever you need to do, um, if you had harder times earlier in your life where you didn't feel like you were good enough, um, being compassionate, I think, is the best way to go to make you feel better in the now because even though you're doing better on in a kind of a measurable way now that doesn't mean you were actually doing bad that's true back then it doesn't mean you were a bad person or you weren't a smart person it just it wasn't the right time or you weren't in the right environment um so yeah really good point coming at it with kindness awesome one more thing i want to add um, Nicole and I used to work at the same job, so I wonder if our feelings come from that. Um, <laughs> anyway, probably not, but maybe. That's it. We're done recording for this week.
All the music you heard in this episode was written and performed by Sarah Camus. You can check out her website at sarahcamus.com. Thank you very much.